Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3 as I welcome you back as we again dive into Mark's Gospel. We're looking at the later Galilean ministry. Our message is Family Matters as we're going to look at two different passages of Scripture. We read of Mark's account of Jesus choosing 12 men to be His disciples. You might remember that we made four observations and I'm going to give some reviews. The first observation that Jesus chose the men is that they didn't volunteer, they didn't take nominations and then vote on them. Jesus chose the men that the Father had given to him. The second observation was the purpose in their choosing. Jesus chose these 12 men so that he might train them and send them out on a mission to preach and to cast out demons. The third observation is we looked at the men who were called. They were not the brightest and the best in the world's eyes, but yet they were still precious in God's sight, as we see that God chooses not the wisest and not the best looking, thank you, but He chooses those things that are foolish to the world. The fourth observation that we saw was the form of a question, in which why did Jesus choose Judas, knowing that He would betray Jesus? The reason was that it was part of the plan of God. And in it we see that even one who can follow God, who proclaims to follow God, was not. Again, as a matter of view, we took home four challenges from those observations for us to consider and to respond and to to apply to our lives. The first one is in the same way that Jesus chose them, He chooses us. Amen? And this should lead us to worship and gratitude. He has given us also a commission as He gave them. And this should lead us to trust in His purpose for us. And we too are ordinary people called to do an extraordinary message. This should cause us to be encouraged in our mission. And fourthly, unlike Judas, we are to be sold out in service to the king, which should cause us to be single-minded and determined in our mission. And after choosing the disciples we see in this passage, Jesus returns with his disciples to Capernaum, And here the crowds once again overwhelm him, desiring his company, praying for deliverance, hungry for teaching, and they become so demanding that Jesus and the disciples could not even eat. So let's look at the first passage, Mark 3, 20-21. It says, Then Jesus went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Let's pray. Father, As we open up your word, we thank you for the precious word of God, for it is true and is reliable, and it's there that we find all that pertains to godliness. And Father, I pray as we open it up, we do so treasuring it in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you give us an open mind to hear, and Lord, I pray that your spirit would do the work. And Father, I pray that you'd be with me as I speak, and let me speak the words of you and give us wisdom and discernment to know the difference between the two. We thank you once again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me ask, have you ever had a family member so engrossed in their work and their hobby that you worried about their health and welfare? Any men here that are workaholics, ready to admit it? We have a meeting after the service, okay? Yeah, there's a few of you. Any, should I say spouses? Do you have a spouse that's like that? It happens, is there not? 
or someone you love suffering from addiction, I think probably all of us are touched by that today. My, myself and my family, we grew up in a Christian home. Well, I would say a divided Christian home. My father was not a Christian. We went to Christian schools. We went to Christian church. We went three days a week. You know, we did all this and all that. I remember my brothers, three of my brothers, I have three brothers, all three of them found themselves hopelessly addicted to about everything. I've shared this story with you before. And many of you know my brother Steve wound up eventually being delivered from that through an almost death experience. And you ought to hear his story on that. It's an amazing story. And then how God used him to create and develop and introduce an international addiction ministry called Reformers Unanimous. And in it, he began to help people change their lives, to begin intervening in their lives. Through that ministry, he is able to intervene into my youngest brother's life, and he too now works for that ministry. And I was going to share an example of different things that I've seen and where we've had had intervention, but as I was just thinking about this, I, I thought of my brother Steve. Uh, he's the one that's a year younger than I. He's the one that started that ministry. And as many of you know, he went to be with the Lord five years ago, and uh, he left uh, five children. And I remember Steve during that time, in 15 years, he grew what was a Sunday school class into this international ministry, a big publishing house in which they do all sorts of things, DVDs, videos, the whole works, rescuing thousands from the chains of addiction and still going on strong. But I remember Steve, he came out here several times. He did preach in this church years and years ago. I think back about 2006 he was here and I let him preach. That was the only time I let him preach. He's a fiery guy. Good thing we didn't have this podium because it probably would have been destroyed at that. But Steve was a workaholic. Steve worked and worked. I mean, in 15 years, he accomplished more than what many would do in their whole lifetime. Uh, he was a big personality. Him and I were almost complete opposites. He was fiery red hair, and he was just Mr. go get him. He was the gregarious one. And it's so funny because if you knew him before this, everything about him was annoying. But what was interesting, after he came back to the Lord, everything that was annoying to everyone else wound up being his greatest strengths. You hear these people say, man, that used to annoy me when he did that. But I remember when he first started to share his ministry, and I was already in ministry, so I was glad to see that he had finally gotten right and that he was doing what he was supposed to be doing and things of that nature. And I remember early in his ministry, just encouraging him. He'd come from time to time to ask me some questions and try to help him through it. And I remember my two other brothers, you know, he desperately wanted to save them and, and their friends from what was going on, and, and they just wouldn't listen to him. You know, isn't that the way? What does Jesus say? You know, prophet has no honor in his own country. Isn't that true? So eventually, though, he was able to help one of my brothers, but he was just go, go, go. I don't know how he had time to sire five children, but I mean, he was always out of town working himself just to the bone, and he was going. I mean, his phone was constantly ringing. He came out here a couple times for vacation, and it was a nice time with his wife and the children. We never really saw him, even though he was right there, because when he was right there with us the whole time, he just, phone was ringing. Everybody wanting him. Everybody needing him. No one can make a decision without him. Every addict had his phone number, and he would sit there and just counsel him. And we'd say, Steve, turn that phone off. And when we finally did put the phone, all we would do was we'd talk about his ministry. That's about it. He was single-minded. He was determined. He was focused. And God used him in a mighty way. When he would preach, it's the funniest thing, is I remember the first time he preached, he just would go on and on. And Steve was one of those ones that he would take a breath and that he'd want to get the most out of that breath 
that he could. So he would take a breath and he would start talking. He would go in and go in and go in and he would keep on going. Oh, I took a breath. He would not stop to take a breath. And he would go such and such and his hair is red and his face would get even redder than his hair. His hair was actually orange. We'd even tease about it. He would go, I got some videos if you want. And you just thought, this guy, he, something's going to happen to this guy. He was just your typical A guy. By the time that he had his ministry going, he wound up as a VP of a fuel company in acquisitions of land for new places he would develop. So he had everything going and he left all that with five children to go full-time into this ministry. And in 13 years, he built it up. And to the moment, he just handled everything. Micromanager to the max. People kept telling him, see, you got to settle down. You can't do it all yourself. These people, they're just pressing you, and they would. These are people that loved and cared for him, but they needed his help. They didn't want to talk to someone else. They had to talk to Steve. Well, Steve was very talented, and his personality allowed him to do so. But I would say eventually it cost him his life. For on a Friday, he had a big barbecue for them. Saturday, he took family pictures. He went soul winning with them. And then on Saturday, as he's rushing to the airport to get to another meeting, he had a massive heart attack. Less than a mile from home. Very surprising. But... Knowing Steve and going back, you could see that he was a recipient of this, overworking, people pressing on him, so much to the point that we were concerned for his welfare, trying to reach out to him. Don't we do that? Well, really, this is what we're seeing with Jesus' family. It seems that Jesus' family did not either know or understand who Jesus was in his ministry as they hear the news of what's going on in Capernaum as they're hearing about the crowds that are pressing him, to the point that he has to, to go into isolation, even to choose those 12 disciples. People couldn't even get in. They remember they had to take the roof off. Yet they were ignorant of really who Jesus was. Turn to Luke, if you would, chapter 2. I want to give you a passage of Scripture that early in his ministry, even his parents did not understand truly who he was his stepfather and mother. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, we see Jesus about 12 years old. And in verse 41, it says, And his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, and as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents did not know it. Look at verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And they did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Where could he be? And in verse 63, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. We're zero in now. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers, even at the tender age of 12. Verse 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. But look at the rest. 
and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. From the very beginning, something was different about Jesus. He was on mission. He knew his purpose. And even at the age of 12, people were amazed at his learning and his understanding. But yet even his mother and father, who knew his beginnings, knew who he was, still struggled to understand completely Jesus. The response, they, they did not understand, and she treasured and pondered these things in her heart. Now we zero in about 18, 19, 20 years later. And Jesus now is in his full-time ministry. And he's just being bombarded by requests and desires for them to seek him. Probably at Peter and Andrew's house where he made his home. And it's so busy and so packed that they could not even, the disciples, sit down and eat a meal. The problem here is that we're seeing is that his family attributed his ministry, his impact, to something other than God. Just like the scribes, as we will see next week, they wanted to attribute to Jesus his work to an evil source. The scribes that we'll see next week believed that Jesus was possessed by a demon, while Jesus' family believed that Jesus was insane. They were there for a family intervention. It was time to protect him from himself. And they wanted to take Jesus back to Nazareth, back to their home. The Greek word here, translated seize, means to hold on, to control, to arrest. He could not handle himself. And like a child or some adult that you may need to take over his affairs, they were looking to do so because they did not trust that he could do it. He was out of his mind. Though they had grown up with Jesus, experienced his demeanor, character, and spirit, they truly did not understand what Jesus was doing. All they saw was their half-brother being mobbed by crowds of people. Whether they had seen his miracles, heard his teachings, observed his casting out of demons, we do not know. Scripture doesn't really share with us. But what we do know is that they are concerned for him. They love him, but they truly didn't know how to respond. And in this, we need to set up that this is a family that though they truly don't know Jesus, they do love him. They do care for him. They do want to protect him. Now, could you imagine, though, being Jesus' half-brother? I tell you, the kid who never did no wrong, the kid who did everything right, got all the best grades, was always submissive, I mean, it must have been terrible to grow up with that perfect child. How many of you were that perfect child growing up? Yeah, not too many of you. You know what I'm talking about, that brother or sister that's the favorite. So there could have been some resentment in here, but at least they seem to say he needs to be protected from himself. So this was a loving, caring family. But now we're going to skip here this next passage, and we'll look at that next week. But I want to go back or forward to verse 31. Because we're going to see what Jesus is about to say to this loving family that cares for him, that wants to protect him, ones that he grew up with, he ate with, he played with, the ones he truly loves as family. Jesus is going to say something and point out something very shocking to this family. Look at Mark chapter 3 as we go through verse 31 through 35 or in your scriptures. It says, and his mothers and his brothers came. So they finally find themselves at his house. 
And standing outside, they could not get in. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, Jesus, your mother and your father are outside and they're seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. You and I know family is important, isn't it? Family is something that's very important. It's the first people that we learn from. It's the first people that we learn to trust and care for and do life together. One editor of the Bible Dictionary notes that a family is a common bond of blood that bound together the members of a larger family who refer to each other as brothers, typically in Scripture. Members accepted a communal responsibility for assistance, protection, the sharing of work, loyalty, and cooperation for the general well-being of the family. That's what a family unit was in the Old Testament and what we know of in the New Testament. It would be a little bit different now where families now are a little bit individualized. There's usually not always a large group. They tend to grow up and separate and start their own life somewhere else. But in those days, families mainly consisted not only the uh, individual and immediate family, but your cousins and so on and so forth. They would become clans and tribes and they would live together and there was a hierarchy and there was responsibility and privileges that come with being a family. So now think of this. Jesus as the eldest brother of his family and assuming that Joseph had passed away as we believe he has, he would have became the patriarch of that family unit. He would be the one that's responsible for the whole household, yet he's called away for a greater purpose. You can almost imagine that his mothers and brothers and sisters were confused about Jesus' decisions, his actions, and his directions. Instead of taking care of the family business of carpentry and so on and so forth, he abandoned it all for a different father's business. You never think about that too much. But you can probably imagine his family is conflicted. For an eldest brother who now assumes that responsibility to, to walk away from all that is unheard of. He's the one that's going to continue. He's going to leave, but Jesus leaves it all behind. Scripture doesn't tell us all that story, but I think if we could imagine the family, how that would be. I remember the time that uh, we went to my mom and dad when we realized we were going to come up to California. And we set them all down, and we had already moved about 20 miles away from one city to the next to minister. So that wasn't too bad because we could still see each other you know, very easily. But setting them down, I said, Mom and Dad, I have some news for you. God's been working our lives, and He's called us to be missionaries in Africa. And, of course, their face just dropped. And then I joked, said, no, we're actually going to stay in the States of just California, trying to kind of help them out. Now, you have to understand, people in Illinois think California is a different world. I truly had a church try to deputize me to send me out here, jokingly though. So to them, it's a whole different world. But I could imagine, I remember their faces. You know, at this time, we had all three of our children. My brother, Steve, only had one child at the time, maybe two. But my kids were eight, then 10, and then 13 uh, was my children. So my children were their only grandchildren for seven, eight years. And all of a sudden, we're taking them all. And I'm the eldest of the family. And so, you know, my dad doesn't seem to be doing well. We're having some problems in the family. 
and I'm the one that's moving out. And I thought about that, but yet we were so excited about our new mission that we just knew it was the right thing. But from their perspective, it was very, very difficult. And at that time, we did not know that within a year, my dad would be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so when he found out, here we are 2,000 miles away, that became very, very difficult. And so Steve became kind of then the helper in the family. And then my dad passes away. And then the next year, Steve passed away. My mom lost her husband, her son, and then her mother all in the same three-year period. And it was very difficult. I remember then thinking, should I go back? Because at least Steve could take care of business. I've got two other brothers back there, but they're the youngest, and they have their families. So as I think about this as I was doing this message, I could kind of almost understand how his family might feel. Actually, my selfish prayer is that God never takes my family away from me as I took my family away from their grandparents and from their cousins. That was a very difficult choice, by the way. But what we see here is they're probably confused, but yet they still want to help Jesus. And surely, they expected that Jesus would at least give them an audience once they arrived. And even the crowd expected it as they saw and said, well, who are you to want to see Jesus? Well, I'm his mother and these are his brothers. Oh, well, let me tell Jesus. Jesus, they're here. And I know if, if my parents came or my brothers, you know, we had our niece here a couple weeks ago. That, that's something that we make attention for. We adjust our schedules for, right? As difficult it is may be, we desire to be with them. But yet, Jesus doesn't exhibit that. Instead, Jesus replies in a very different and shocking way. Look at the scripture, if it's still there in your Bible. He says, who are my mother and my brother? Is this Jesus out of his mind? Is this proof that he's gone insane? He's forgotten who his mother and his brothers are? It's a very curious question. The answer seems simple. Anyone answering that question would obviously reply, well, the woman who gave you birth, that's your mother. The one who gave you birth, who raised you, who taught you. Your brothers and your sisters would be those who share family blood and a family name. Those that you grew up with, those that you played with, those that you did life together. What are you talking about, Jesus? Yet Jesus here is pointing out a spiritual truth that probably shocked them all. When he says, looking at those who sat around him, speaking of his disciples, he said, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What a curious answer. Could you imagine yourself saying that? Could you imagine yourself saying, hey, if your mother is here, uh, you know what? Well, here's my mother right here. I've replaced them. But before we think of that, Jesus is not abandoning his earthly family, but expanding it while also clarifying who belongs into his family. Verse 34 is probably referring to his disciples who had forsaken all to follow Jesus. And that's what he says. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And so Jesus now is expanding who his family is and clarifying 
who it is that belongs. Here's the spiritual truth. What's happening here is God is creating a new family. And it's not based on human blood ties, but those that are bought by the blood of Christ. You see, the family that we think of now is those things that we share blood with. Or if you have adopted, you've been accepted in that family in that way. And that's a good picture of what God is doing here. But for Jesus to say, no, you know what? It's not just human blood that binds us, but it's the blood of Christ that bought us. That is what binds a true family of God together. A family is not based here on human constructs or the family of God, I should say. It's not based on human constructs of who joins a church or who was born where or who likes who, but it's those that are chosen by God. That's the family of God. And so in that, we see that God is developing something so much different. He's not abandoning one in favor of the other, but He's expanding it, clarifying it. He's making something much better. And He's strengthening it. Pastor John MacArthur writes that Jesus made a decisive and comprehensive statement on true Christian discipleship. He said, right, such discipleship involves a spiritual relationship, not just a physical relationship, but a spiritual relationship that transcends the physical family and is open to all who are empowered by the Spirit of God to come into Christ in repentance and faith and enabled to live a life of obedience to God's Word. So the family of God is much stronger and bigger than just blood. It's something that's been bought by the blood of Christ. Now Mark's early readers and hearers that were located in Rome would have found much comfort from these words of Christ, as well as you and I today. You see, in those early years, those early Christians had forsaken and abandoned all to follow Christ In those days when someone decided to follow Christ, it could cost them their family ties, their economic opportunities, and social acceptance as we saw in our study in Corinthians. Today you can join a church and it really doesn't cost you much. But in those days, it could cost you everything. See the story of Stephen. See the story of James, the brother of John, who fell by the sword and was beheaded. We can see in the traditions of the disciples, the apostles, and many others. Today, it's costing many Christians around the world who are, happen just to live in the area where ISIS has taken over. And our news is just covered and denuated with those who are Christians who are dying daily for their faith. And to be honest, it's not all those that we hear about and read about and see on TV the numbers that we do not know of would just flabbergast us. Those in China, North Korea, and other places. To be part of the family of God will cost. It's a cost of forsaking and abandoning. It means forsaking my will, my agenda, abandoning my dreams, my aspirations for the things of God. My brother learned that. For he was going well into the corporate world, getting his VP, getting all those things, before God finally said, listen, what you're doing is wrong. And he lost all those things because of his addictions. 
God wound up giving them back to him, and then he had to determine which is better, doing this or doing this, and he chose God. In the end, God took him. He served God's purposes in his generation, and like David, he died and slept with his fathers. Amen. That's what God is calling for those of you who are part of his family. So for us, part of the family is just not being born into the right family. It's just not being Western European. God is calling people from every nation, from every tribe, and every tongue to be part of the family of God. Our families are exploding in the way they look and the way they feel. Those early Christians had forsaken, as I said, and abandoned all to follow in those days. To many today, this spiritual truth is an encouragement because their family might have been broken. Maybe some of you came broken families. When you think of a family, you think of everything but goodness and kindness and love. You think of hurt and abuse, emotional, physical, and mental. You think of bitterness and anger. And if your brother and sister or mother were to call you, you wouldn't even answer the phone. If they asked for a fish, you would give them a snake. If they'd asked for bread, you'd give them a stone. I know some in this church that have shared that about their families. We don't get to choose our blood families, do we? It can be difficult. I can imagine some of you that are in the counseling have probably heard many stories of broken families and how it hurts and the pains that it comes through. But there is restoration and there is hope, is there not? Because we find now that family can be rejuvenated. Your family might have been broken, unhealthy, filled with bitterness, anger, and rejection. But the family of God can come in and give you a new family. I know many people who have shared that type of testimony. They didn't know what family was until they knew Christ. Until they came into a church and they learned to do life together. There are many who struggle in trusting God the Father because they did not have that type of father. They cannot understand about God as a mother because their mother was unloving and kind to them. Or had brothers and sisters who were more forms of torture than those that of comfort. Let me tell you, there's a family that can fill that gap. There's a family that's stronger than the blood ties. True that Jesus warned in Matthew 10 that we must love Jesus more than our earthly families, but that does not mean forsaking them or abandoning them. So let's not take this portion of Scripture and say that we truly must hate our family and we must ignore them. Rather, we're to love them and invite them to join in with us in the new family that will last forever. Amen? You see, the good news is that Jesus' family comes around. That's the good news. Is they may not have understood him. They might have thought he was insane. Could you imagine once the word reached them that Jesus said, oh, wait a second, I got a different family? Could you imagine the hurts of Mary, pain of his brothers and sisters? Maybe the resentment that the brothers and sisters had about Jesus already. Here's another example of Jesus just thinks he's too good for us. There's good news about his family. Both of Jesus' half-brothers, James and Jude, would write a New Testament epistle. 
James becomes the pillar of the church at Jerusalem, leading them during some very turbulent and trying times. So his family might have struggled with this new spiritual truth. They might have struggled and not truly understand who Jesus is, but praise God, as they did come around after his death and burial and resurrection. For they became part of that family. So here's the question that I want to answer. If Jesus is making a new family, if the family is something greater, stronger, and more internal than our physical families, who makes up that family of God? The biblical answer is going to be simple. Who is it that's the family of God? I want to share with you three things that the family of God consists of. To become part of the family of God, to be part of that family, that everlasting family, it must consist of those that have repented from dead works and put their trust in Christ. And someone asked a good question, what is dead works? Well, dead works are those works, those good works that we do to try to attain righteousness, to try to make ourselves right with God, to try to earn our salvation. They lead to death. We must repent of that. In other words, understanding that our good works are as what? Filthy rags, the Bible says. There's none that do good, not even one. There's none that seeketh after God. So we need to repent from those dead works and put our trust. There's some that would say, we do not need to repent any longer. Let me share with you, the prophet Ezekiel said, repent and turn from all your transgressions. John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus commanded that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Peter promised, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul warns that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For the family of God consists of those that have repented from dead works and trust in Jesus. It's those that do the will of the Father. That's what Jesus says. Pray like this. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I would ask you, have you repented of your dead works and put your trust in the saving work of Christ? And that God has accepted what Jesus has done and He's implied it to you and I when we turn and trust in Him. If you have, then welcome to the family of God. The family of God consists, number two, of those that, are led, that have and are led by the Spirit. Those that have and are led by the Spirit. Romans 8. Take your Bibles and turn there with me if you would, please. Let's get you involved. Romans chapter 8. Those that have and are led by the Spirit. If you have the Spirit and led by the Spirit, you are a child of God. You're in that family. Romans 8, look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And if children then were heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. Those that have the Spirit and led by the Spirit are in the family of God. That's the characteristics. It's not your hair color. It's not your color of your eyes. It's not your height. It's not the characteristics that you might have like your parents. But it's those things 
that have the Spirit of God. And then number three, the family of God consists of those that love and care for other believers. 1 John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We've seen that in several verses that we've read already, is that those who do the will of God will love their neighbor as themselves. He tells us, but there is a special love, though, between family members. You understand this just on a basic physical level, is there not? We have family, you have children, you have mothers and fathers, and you have a love for them, do you not? But that love for them does not say that you don't have love for others, but you have a special love for your children, a special love for your parents, a special love for your grandparents. In the same way, God says you ought to have a special love among yourselves. He says, especially do good to those of the household of God. He says, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Not by your love for those outside the church, but by the way in which you love, forgive, and are kind to each other. So when we are together, the way that we interact shares whether or not we are the family of God. I remember going into the store or to anything that we would go when our kids were little. We'd always say one thing, remember whose child you are. Anyone ever say something similar to that? Remember whose child you are. I don't want to hear my name on the speaker saying, Mr. Currington, can you please come? What am I saying when I'm saying, remember whose child you are? Say, remember who you are. Remember how I've taught you. Remember how I've told you to behave. Remember that. In the same way, God says, remember whose child you are. As I have loved you, love and care for each other. 65 one another's in the Bible. And so there is a special love that the family of God has in here. You and I ought to interact with each other differently than we do with the other world. That doesn't mean that we castigate the world or anyone who comes out from the outside. We love them. But there is a special love and concern that we have for the children of God. Why? Because we're family. We used to have this saying, you know, Steve was the one that we always picked on. There was four of us. So Steve was the one that was the outgoing. And he was the one that seemed to get the most trouble, and so he was the one you could pick on. And he would say, what we, Rod, you know what you need? You just need a little bit of brotherly love and understanding. And every time he'd say that, you know what that would make me want to do? Hit him. Hit him harder. The problem is the guy could run forever. He would just outrun me forever. And he was like a rabbit. Choo-choo-choo. We had this thing, we were always picking on him, hit him on We'd hit each other. We did stupid stuff. We were brothers. We always loved Christmas because during Christmas you get big snow gloves. You know, the big snow ones. That you guys may not understand what I'm talking about. Gloves are things that you put on your head and they have fur in them. And they're really soft. Well, for us, those were boxing gloves. And we would box each other with those things. But let me tell you, we would pick on each other and hit each other. But when we were in the neighborhood or in our school, and someone would come and pick on one of the others, well, guess what we did? You don't touch him. I may hit him, but you're not touching him. And that was very true. There was only one rule. We were not allowed to hit on our youngest brother, Barry. We never could hit on him because my dad wouldn't let us. The three of us, we were okay to go at but we could never do Barry. But that's how life is. That's how family is. We love each other. We have a special care for each other. There's a song I love. It's an old gospel song. Some of you may know this. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you. 
It says, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm a part of the family, the family of God. He goes on to say, you will notice we say brother and sisters around here. It's because we're a family and these are so near, speaking of each other. Where one has a heartache, we will all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. From the door of an orphanage to the house of a king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags under riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong. The family of God. God has expanded it, He's clarified it, and He's inviting you to join in that family. I invite you today, if you're not part of the family of God, would you join by repenting of your sin and trusting in the work, allowing the Spirit to come in and embrace you and that you may too may cry out, Abba, Father. And I challenge those today that are already children of God, would you participate in the family of God by loving it, caring it, doing life together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'd ask you to pause, to pray, to consider, and to respond what God may be calling you today. It might be to join the family of God. It might be to participate in the family of God, to be part of it, to find your niche, to start serving, to start loving. Maybe it's time that you have something against a member of God and you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to come and say, I've got bitterness, I have resentment. God call us to do family work during family time. What is God calling you to this morning? Father, I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for family. I am very much a product of the family that you brought me up in. And I thank you for those memories, and I thank you for all the plus and the minuses that come with an earthly family. Father, for they have made me stronger, and they have brought me to you. And Father, I thank you for this heavenly family that you've brought me into. My children have many cousins and grandparents and uncles and aunts because being part of this family. You've replaced those things which we've lost. And Father, I pray for this family here that you would strengthen us, that you'd help us to see each other as brothers and sisters. May we weep with those who weep. Let us rejoice with those who rejoice. Let us love, let us care, let us serve. And Father, may we always be gracious filled with gratitude for what you've caused us to. In your name we pray. God's people said once again, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.